Hello there and welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Sarah from Sarah Faruya Coaching and this is the Legends Podcast. I believe there are many, many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories and I want to tell them and share them. These legends are a collection of people who I have found during my 20 years in Tokyo and before. All of them are brilliant people. And when I became bored with reading another billionaire's biography, I thought I want to tell the stories of the people who I meet who are absolutely fascinating, but you won't see on your regular podcast interview. They have overcome obstacles, both systemic and internal, and we cover all kinds of things from creativity, grief, racism, business, disaster, loss, trolling, infertility, farming, eating disorder, eco-feminism, and more. We have elite athletes, people who live on Zen temples in remote parts of Japan, BBC newscaster to Taekwondo champion. Please enjoy these amazing stories from what they've overcome, from what they've built, from what they've created, from the way that they talk. I'm just delighted thinking about it. So please get stuck in and enjoy this next legend. Hello, 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 everybody, and welcome to this, the Legends podcast. Uh, we are late February 2021, and we are about one year into the COVID-19 pandemic. And so it's been a really interesting year for everybody. Um, I believe that everybody has stories and I want to tell them. And there are many, many ways to lead a life. And today I'm going to introduce to you an incredible woman, one of my mentors, one of my big sisters, who was uh, an incredible mentor to so many people in Tokyo and now is based in the US. I'm sure she'll tell us more about that. So welcome, 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 Lisa Lowitz. Am I saying that right, Lisa? You perfect, it's perfect. I'm Thank so happy to be here, Sarah. As soon as it comes out of my mouth, I'm like, wait a second, I don't think I've ever said that before. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, there's no possible way to, I mean, I've just looked at Lisa's Wikipedia page and there's no possible way to give her the introduction that truly, truly she deserves. But what I'm going to focus on is her author's introduction. So Lisa Lowitz's writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Huffington Post, the Shambhala Sun, Asian Jewish Life and the Best Buddhist Writing of 2011, including much, much more than that. She's published over 20 books. Um, including the APALA award-winning YA novel, Jet Black and the Ninja Wind, which she co-wrote with her husband, the best-selling yoga poems, which she co-wrote with her husband, uh, I beg your pardon, uh, best-selling yoga poems, Line to Unfold by, and her most recent, but this isn't her most recent now, Here Comes the Sun, A Journey to Adoption in Eight Chakras. How fascinating. Lisa is American. She lived in Japan for many, many years with her husband, and she's now based in the US with her beautiful son. And you can visit her online at lisalowitz.com. But also she started up one of the most popular yoga studios in Tokyo called Sun and Moon Yoga. I've been there many times. I've been very uh, honored to be a guest there. And I like to just throw in a little fun fact about my guests. So fun fact about Lisa is about, this is a weird fun fact to throw in, is that about two years ago, I fell into the craziest depression. <laughs> and Lisa was one of the people I reached out to to take me for lunch. And she took me for lunch and we had a great conversation. And she's one of those amazing people who's got that brilliant balance between being compassionate, but also fierce. 
And so I felt very well cared for on that day. And uh, I think I was probably wildly upset because I didn't have my house by the sea at that time. And now I live by the sea. So uh, dreams do come true. And it's always worth reaching out to people who you can trust and who are great mentors and, and can be, you know, good big sisters to you in your village. So Lisa, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. I, I'm so happy that you're doing this from your beautiful house by the sea. I knew when we were having that lunch that you, you were going to manifest that because that's just who you are. You make things happen. So it was just a, a question of timing and here you are. And it's so lovely. Oh, thanks, Lisa. So let's kick off then. Let's get into it. So tell me about your ancestry, your background and your childhood. Uh, gosh, that's a big um, I know. <laughs> of cake to bite off. Um, so my ancestors, my parents are Russian Jews. Um, uh, their parents were Russian Jews and they came from Poland, what was then uh, Poland and Russia, and immigrated to the United States um, around the turn of the century, the last century, two centuries ago now. And um, I... My parents were from the Midwest. They lived in the Midwest um, in Illinois and um, Iowa, believe it or not. But um, when my sisters, I have two elder sisters a year apart and I were born um, shortly after that, they moved to the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. So that's where I was born. And then I spent a few years, my father was drafted into the Navy during the Vietnam War. And I spent a few years in Key West, Florida at a Navy base. So I was sort of a Navy brat for a few years. And that was a very um, kind of influential point in my life in many ways. Key West, Florida, incredible place, very artistic, very um, atmospheric, um, a great place to be a kid um, by the beach. And then uh, we moved to Berkeley, California. So that was in the uh, 60s and um, 70s. I went to Berkeley High. I was bused into um, a black school and uh, with Kamala Harris, same uh, era, same. Um, she was a year or two younger than me. Mm -hmm. um, but that whole integration, black power movement um, as a white kid getting bused into a black school, which was later named Malcolm X School. So it was quite radical. Mm. Um, that really impacted my worldview as well. Um, and then I went to New York. I wanted to be a writer. So I went to New York when I was 18 and I went to NYU for a few years and I worked there. And then I transferred back to, to Berkeley and went to UC Berkeley and majored in English. I'd always been interested in Japan. I um, had a pretty tumultuous uh, childhood growing up in Berkeley. It was a very tumultuous time and my parents' relationship was very tumultuous. And um, I had a high school social studies teacher who introduced us to meditation. So it was there that I found some calm and I found some peace. And um, I later studied martial arts because I was beaten up a lot as a child. Um, and I kind of got tired of it. That, fuck this, I have to defend myself, you know? So I started to learn a, a very intense form of Okinawan martial arts. And that teacher had us do chant the Heart Sutra and meditate, which was very unusual. But I didn't know that, you know, you don't know when you're a kid. Uh, and so those things I think really planted a lot of seeds for me to eventually make my way to Japan and to pursue um, meditation and yoga practice. And so I think, you know, just the key points of my life, those were, hitting those 
Yeah. Wow, so much in there. Um, yeah. Lisa, so much in there. So um, I, it's interesting when you were talking about uh, um, the Midwest and Illinois and Iowa, I was like, I do not relate that to, to you. When you said you were born in San Francisco, I was like, oh, there it is. So that's, <laughs> that's how I kind of relate to you. Uh, I often wonder, you know, who I would have been had my parents stayed in the Midwest. I would not, ha I would not be this person. I don't know who I would have been, but I know I would not have been this person. Yeah, I think we're really shaped by our environments yeah. and the social and political environments and, and the times in which we grow up. Um, and in my case, it was such a, you know, I mentioned the Black Power Movement, but it was also the feminist movement. Mm. You know, all of those movements were coming out at that time, the free speech movement, you know, in Berkeley, in the exact place where I was growing up. And it was just a, a really wild, time full of change and full of possibility and full of you know people just breaking um old you know ways that weren't working anymore or trying to break them and in, in kind of radical ways so yeah i would not be this person so i'm grateful they left i mean nothing against the midwest no, but i'm really no. grateful that they didn't stay there yeah you know it's so so i've got a couple of questions here that's really interesting because now i'm seeing the kind of picture of you coming together that kind of feminist, wild, change, possibility. <laughs> I see all those things as being really part inherent in the person that I met 10, 15 years ago. You may not know that you met me then, but I certainly knew that I'd met you. Um, <laughs> um, is, um, so there's two questions. In your imagination, who are you if you'd been raised in the Midwest? And again, nothing against the Midwest, beautiful place. Um, lots of people come from there. The Obamas, uh, well, uh, um, uh, Mrs. Obama. But like, where did, where did, in your imagination, who were you? Yeah, I've never really gone down that road. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, it's really hard to answer that question, but what I do know and what I've talked with my son a lot about because now he's a Japanese boy living in America and, you know, pushing up against walls and conflict, even though it's really challenging, conflict is actually what makes you grow and what makes you break out of these ideas of who you think you are and what you think you're capable of enduring or you know, um, dealing with in your life. And it's these situations where you're pushed to your limit that actually you kind of find out what you're made of. And that was my childhood, you know, in every sense. It was my, my family life, my school life. I mean, there was no place except meditation that was sort of a calm place where I wasn't challenged in major, very extreme kinds of ways. So I think in the Midwest, I don't know that I would have had those challenges. Yeah. You know, I might just have, have I might have, I might have find things to rebel against there, but I, I think it's, it's very hard to separate what's going on in the outer world from how you re respond internally and the choices that you make um, yeah. or are forced to make sometimes. Yeah, it's really interesting you should say there about how your environment and the time that you're raised in really shapes you as well. So, you know, we often mention on these on these conversations about like, why no, we had no phones when we were younger. We had one phone, you know, with a with a dial on it when I was little, and it was expensive. So, yeah, you know, we how we met anybody, <laughs> no, I never know. Also, you know, I think about my own childhood. I was raised near Liverpool, four miles from Liverpool, at the time when it would have been something parallel to New Jersey, I suppose. The same kind of thing was happening. Docks were closing down. 
you know, Margaret Thatcher was in power at the same time that Ronald Reagan was in power. It's that era that really shaped me. So there was this kind of paradox of having two female leaders in my country and being like, I can do anything. <laughs> and plus just watching the, 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 the deep, deep and fast decline of the, of the, and the environment that I lived in as well. So these things really, really do shape your worldview and your social justice mind and all these kinds of things. And it sounds exactly like that for you as well. Um, I think so too. And especially in those teenage years when you're forming an identity or trying yeah. to form an identity. And if you're in an environment that's constantly shifting and that, you know, it's, it, it, it it's, it's interesting. I think it, it, you you understand on some level, whether conscious or not, that there's very little within your control, and the and the things that are within your control are really what how you think, what's in your mind, and the actions that you yourself can take to respond to what's outside of you, because you cannot really control the outer world. And I think that was impressed upon me really early, um, which is a key teaching of Buddhism. You know, the idea of impermanence and the idea of um, non-attachment, you know, but I think viscerally those things were inherent in the environment in which I grew up. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, it was a great teaching in a way. Berkeley is a university town, is that right? Correct. So is it quite a radical university town? It's like, is this is like, is it Stanford's kind of radical sister? <laughs> That's how I imagine it. I imagine like Stanford's one of the old schooly places and then Berkeley's this kind of more radical place. Well, Stanford and Berkeley have a rivalry and yeah, okay. you know, in the 80s and then, you know, after, well, in the 60s, Berkeley was really the birthplace of the free speech movement. Mario Savio and those people um, when in 1968 to protest the Vietnam War, you know, they were taking over the Dean's office of Columbia, of, of Berkeley. In Paris, you have the student riots there too. So it was really a, a hotbed of activism and people were not afraid to stand up to the government and say, hey, we're not gonna fight this war. You know, we're, we don't, and, and also the injustice of, you know, the disproportionate amount of African-American men that were being sent off to war. And you could get a draft deferral if you had an education and sort of, you know, all of these injustices, I think that people were pointing out. And then Berkeley was also the, you know, the birthplace, Oakland of the Black Panther movement um, and Black Power movement. So you had that coming up and the, the Nation of Islam, you know, they had, I remember they had like, um, you know, your basic Muslim bakery, they called it. And I would see all these young African-American men who were wearing white and who were become Muslim, who were working, you know, hard at the, in jobs at this bakery and trying to make something of their lives. And so there was this movement to kind of shift the injustices and kind of, you know, take the reins, I guess, from the military industrial complex that, that was just, and over the, the decades after continued to you know, initiate war after war after war in America. But the Vietnam War was really the first time that it was televised. And it was the first time that we would see men in body bags, people coming home that you could actually see the effects of war. And it was devastating. So I think the media and this whole thing that came about, you know, Berkeley was just the place where people took a stand and then it spread like wildfire. And then, you know, over the years, Silicon Valley where Stanford is located in the, in the um, South Bay, that area became known for tech, 
you know, so I think Stanford kind of, you know, was more conservative and um, not as diverse, honestly speaking, um, and the population as well. I mean, it was kind of a bedroom community for, for white people, I guess, you know, initially. Um, whereas the Bay Area, there, there had always been Oakland, there were shipyards, so a lot of African-American families came there in the Second World War to work on the ships and also Marin County. Um, Chinese, the Asian population, there was a big Chinatown there. Um, so there was a lot more diversity. How do you think that influenced you, Lisa? How do you think that has influenced your worldview and the way that you moved through the world? Well, I think the, the, the major impact was, you know, being a white person bust into a black school and not really being wanted there, but also seeing the, the reality that there were um, real differences in the quality of education and the facilities and, you know, what was available to white people and black people and kind of not realizing, you know, literally being bust down from the hill you know, into the flatlands and kind of seeing the disparity, I was really shocked. Mm -hmm. And then and then not being wanted, not being welcomed there either. You know, that was also shocking. But then the positive of that was, you know, being exposed to amazing, uh, you know, figures like Maya Angelou came to talk to us when I was in the sixth grade. James Baldwin came to the school. I mean, these, because the black, African-American administrators of the school understood that, you know, they had the opportunity to empower the children in those communities and to lift them up. And so that was just, I will never forget the sound of Maya Angela's voice just booming out in this auditorium. And I was just mesmerized. And I wanted to be a writer, I think, in that moment. And, you know, there was a lot of strife, but I felt, and I've written about this a little bit, but I felt in that moment, we were all one. We were all so mesmerized by this person that all of our racial differences, all of our gender, class, whatever, we, we all came together in this moment in listening to this woman's story. You know, I know why the Kate Spurs thing, which is about her being raped, you know, uh, and not speaking for years um, until she found her voice. So I feel like that gave me an opportunity to first recognize we didn't call it white privilege then, but yeah. recognize how privileged I was. Yeah. Recognize and being a minority in a way. I was a white girl in a black school. So teaching me a compassion and empathy about being other. Yeah. Um, you know, these lessons have stayed with me. It was a difficult time. And then a lot of the kids I grew up with went to high school with. We, you know, over time became friendly and we did make a, a you know, community, but it took a while. Yeah. So I think that all of those, you know, the, and then moving to Japan later and kind of being other there and marrying a Japanese man and raising a, a, a family that was different, you know, I, I think I, I was strong enough to do that, you know, and also creating the, the community at Sun and Moon um, and not having to have an agenda for it, sort of trusting that things unfold themselves organically as they need to. And we don't really have control, but we can guide and nurture, you know, ourselves along the way. So I don't know if that answered your question or not. <laughs> Perfectly answers my question. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. And I, what I like about the retelling of this story um, 
Lisa, is the the inherent optimism in it. And I mean optimism, not like jazz hands possibility, but but positivity. <laughs> I mean optimism in that you you take what is and then you take the next step forward with it. And then very consciously make it something interesting, uh, something fertilizing or nourishing for, for the future. And we don't deny or kind of toxically positively gloss over the, the kind of difficulties, but in our retelling, we don't put ourselves as the victim at the center of it, but we understand where we um, had challenges and what that how that shapes who we are today. I think that's really, I really enjoy your retelling of that. I think it really ni aligns nicely with the coaching mindset as well. Um, and the the other thing that I like about the retelling is this, when you said that like those people who you had, who were challenged you when you were young, or maybe I'm gonna just use the word bully and I can say this in my life as well, is, um, and, and I've been on both sides of that fence and I will be very honest about that. Um, you know, like I can remember being mean to people at school and replaying those things over and over in my head and, you know, trying to forgive myself for it. And now we're friends on Facebook and we chat away. And the same for the people who weren't very nice to me at school as well. Now we're friends on Facebook and we happily chat away. And it's just that sense of, oh, right, you can actually move on from these things. They actually do, you know, it's you, we're not stuck in a moment of time. And sometimes we can get stuck in a moment of time and waste decades of our lives on it. And I think that's a terrible shame. And, um, you know, I, I so I hope that if anybody's listening can take heart from this, um, that relationships can change and morph over time. Uh, I think I think that's something I take heart from and you've beautifully illustrated there, Lisa. Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And, and myself as well, I mean, there were girls. I think teenage girls can be really horrible. And I think <laughs> I was horrible to a few girls that were my friends. And then when I was sort of accepted into the more popular group, I tried to bring them in and they weren't accepted and I had to drop them and I felt horrible about it. Yeah. You know, to this day, I still feel guilty and I've tried to reach out and things like that. And But I think the point is as well, you really don't know what somebody's going through. No. You know, you really don't know why people act the way they act, including ourselves. No. And I think for me, you know, the other thing I kind of touch upon is my parents' marriage sort of fell apart. And my mother was a struggling single mom who was struggling to make ends meet. And my father was off doing his thing. And I was just really kind of abandoned. And so I think I learned early on if I, and I kept waiting for somebody to rescue me. And I was a victim. And I was, and I was also a victim because I was beaten up. And, you know, I played that victim card and I milked it. And it really, there was a point in my life when I realized this doesn't work for me. You know, there's nobody who's going to come save me. And I was angry and I was bitter. And I had to go through that as well um to get to come to the other side you know the only way out is through right and i had to be a victim and i had to be angry and bitter and all of those things um until i could really kind of cry myself out and say okay no one's coming to save you this is going to be your life and what the hell are you going to make it because no one else is going to help you mm -hmm. i mean it was really a sad point in my life when i really didn't have anybody but in a way it was a real awakening like you know, you have this gift of life and what the fuck are you going to make of it? You know, like nobody is going to help you until you help yourself. And it, I remember that moment, I think I was 15 or 16 and I just pulled myself up by the bootstraps and said, you know, like coaching myself, 
what do you see for the next 10 years? What do you want to be? How are you going to get there? And if you fail, great. But if you don't try, it's a worse failure. You know, I had that understanding because nobody was there for me. So, you know, that woke me up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting as well. You should say that I'm, I'm interested in. So that was what woke you up. Um, what saved you? Do you think what saved you? Um, I had a boyfriend in high school. Um, I can say his name. Shout out to Andy Polk. It was <laughs> amazing. And, and he had this amazing family too, a, a mother who was also a single mother. But she was um, a concert pianist. She was getting her PhD in musicology. Um, and she said to me, hey, you're smart. Are you going to go to college? Are you applying to college? And I hadn't really even occurred to me. I said, well, I'm probably going to be a secretary because one thing my mother did tell me and bless her heart, learn how to type. Uh -huh. You're going to need to know how to type because in my day, that's what you did. You were a secretary and I can type like a, a maniac. I mean, I'm a great typist. So I'm really happy to my mom for that. But uh, Sharon said to me, if you want to be a writer, you need to go to New York. That's where writers go. And let me help you with college ap applications. And, you know, I was very resourceful. So I had this boyfriend who had this amazing family who really saw something in me and they saw my potential and they helped me apply. And then I got scholarships. I got, I think I worked three or four jobs and, you know, to go to NYU and, and to leave my family and Berkeley and to see what was out there for me. So that really saved me. Um, somebody who believed in me, somebody who got me, who saw me, who saw my potential. And I listened. I, I think if my mother you know, unfortunately, mothers and daughters, if my mother had said something like that to me, I might have rejected it. But because it was coming from someone else, I could hear it. And I could, and I wanted to be that person that she saw in me. Yeah, I love that. And I think there's something really important here. It's about mentors and access as well. If you, you know, if you can see that, you know, if you get that proximity to somebody who's a concert pianist, then you see that potential that could come from you. If you have access to somebody who's going to do a PhD, you have access to that potential as well. And I think it's really important to, to, to note that, like having access to that kind of, um, to things outside of your own worldview is really, really important. And then to listen and then to take the next actions, of course, as well. But, um, we can only imagine as far as we can see to some degree. And I'm always asking my clients to get inside their imagination and imagine more, 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 more. Not because we need more, 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 but just so you can, you know, because our imagination doesn't have any limit to it. But Exactly. And it's a muscle. You have to, you know, work absolutely. the muscle. Absolutely. You have to work the muscle. And it's really awesome if you have somebody like that, that woman who can, uh, Sharon, did you say? Shout out mm -hmm. to Sharon as well. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Can, who can be that that person for you. I was very lucky in that I used to go to church. I used to be a Catholic when I was younger, so I'd go to church. And a church in church, you have access to everybody in the community, right? And the same, I used to be in a choir here, so I had access to so many people in the community, you know? So you, you get to see like, oh, okay, that's possible outside of my, you know, parents' economic and and their their imagination, outside their imagination, I think that's really important. And the other thing that I love that you said was the only way out is through. And 
so again it's really interesting to note like but what takes you through there and sometimes I mean I think for me I went round <laughs> and yeah. then went forward and then when I had enough money I came back to therapy <laughs> so yeah. or, or coaching as well um for me like that combination really worked um so uh, and you know you and I have been uh, oh, I'm saying lucky because going through that is really really hard but um yeah like the through you need some help on the through sometimes what do you think yeah. yeah I think you always need help on the through but it's hard to ask for help and it's hard to receive help oh, and, yes. you, and we all have our own time of being able to hear things you know and I think every life has its own trajectory and its own course and the people you meet along the way. And when you have ears and eyes to hear and see them, you know, when you're ready to evolve to the next level is when you can. So, um, but I, I feel like also for me, um, the fact that she saw the potential in me and she was somebody I respected and I saw how hard she worked for her art and her craft. And, you know, she had the discipline, she had the talent, she had all that, but she also worked really hard. And her son as well, who became an actor. Um, yeah, and he was on Broadway and yay Andy. <laughs> we're still, we're Facebook friends. So, you know, I think that environment of that artistic environment as well. And there was always people at their house who were playing, uh, you know, they had like a little orchestra at their house all the time and they were surrounded by amazing people and the other uh, people that I met at the time were um, a, a friend Julie Litwin who was a friend of his um, whose father was an um, ophthalmologist and they, his father and mother did yoga in India and they were like these beautiful people you know, kind of Berkeley hippies, but just had this aura and this energy. And he started with a, a group of other eye doctors, something called the Seva Foundation, which the Grateful Dead were involved with, which was basically, you know, taking their medical expertise and going to Nepal and helping people with cataracts, like, you know, setting up a clinic to do eye surgery and, you know, for people in another country, just out of, you know, Seva, which means service. So I saw that as well, and I and my father is a physician, is a psychiatrist, and I saw that you could have um, privilege and have an education and have a skill, and and then you know take that into a, a community and and do something with that, um, and that was also incredibly inspiring to me. And I didn't realize at the time that those seeds were really deeply planted. But my sister, my eldest sister, Robin, shout out to Robin, is a doctor, family doctor, and she opened a free clinic in um, Sonoma County, California. And so that was, I think, something that she saw as well in Berkeley that, you know, there was this, you mentioned the Thatcher, the Reagan era, there was the coming in the 80s, you know, after this whole tumult of the 60s, 70s, in the 80s, there was this kind of 180 degree shift towards materialism and you know, consumerism and sort of rampant, you know, consumption and luxury and wealth and um, all of that. And I think um, that was really disturbing to see a lot of, you know, when you could see the other, the underside of that, which was that so many people were really hurting and starving and not able to um, make ends meet, you know? So 
those kind of things all combined, I think, and, and eventually, you know, when I, I wanted to be a writer and I tried to be a writer, I wasn't a big success at it. And I started to do yoga because um, I just was a mess and I kind of just needed some calm and I started to do yoga. And then it was through the yoga practice that I found this sense of kind of just being okay with things as they were, not having to achieve, not having to chase after things, not having to, you know, push so hard all the time, not having to struggle because I'd sort of become addicted to the struggle. Yeah. You know? Oh, oh, let's go there. I, I, <laughs> I'm almost certain that I was addicted to that at some point as well. And, um, uh, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because it, it, it takes a bit of letting go of that does, I think. Uh, you, you used yoga. I used, uh, I tried yoga, but it, <laughs> I'm, not, uh, I'm not consistent enough in that kind of thing. So for me, coaching practices, like psychological stuff really works. So like, and I'm still in process of that, of like being, allowing ease to be in my life because yeah. struggle like my life is still the same and I'm still the same person. And I still, I actually have more higher levels of generosity and kindness when I'm not in the struggle, because I think sometimes the struggle is really related to deserving. Mm -hmm. And then how do you, then you have to kind of pit yourself against other people. Like I deserve it. She doesn't, you do. I did. And I, so I try to kind of keep deserving outside of my um, coaching practice, actually. Cause yeah. I, I, I think it, there's something really insidious about it. Apart from if somebody wins an award, it's like, oh my God, you really deserve, that's brilliant. You know, that's a different story, but like just the idea that just we don't, you know, we have to struggle in order to deserve makes, gives, doesn't feel great to me. But I, if somebody is super struggling, then I honor that too, but it doesn't mean they deserve anything. They deserve things just because. Because right. otherwise they may deserve the struggle as well. And then you get into something very sinister. So anyway, what's what's your take on this? Oh, that's so rich. Um, a few things. Um, I think the idea of, well, I think when you're younger, yeah. um, you tend to get more attracted maybe to drama because it, <laughs> makes you, it makes you feel alive. You know that Goo Goo Dolls song, you know, you bleed just to know you're alive. Yes. You know, it's like, it's like that you cut yourself or you bleed so that you can feel something, especially when you've been numb yeah. um, through trauma or through other, you know, uh, things that have happened. And I mentioned pushing up against things as a way to grow. So I think, you know, I think I had a lot of trauma that I didn't identify as trauma. So I think that the drama and the um, being addicted to this kind of, you know, uh, drama was part of that, that I needed that to feel alive. And then I think what happened was that I failed. I think I had written a novel and I had a great agent and you know everything was looking really good for me and she couldn't sell it. And then it was like, oh, now what? Yeah. This thing that I've sort of put all the eggs in my basket and gone to school for, I did a master's, did, you know, that's not gonna happen. And that was actually the best thing for me because the novel was shit. And if I'd published it, it would have probably ruined my 
so-called writing career such as it was. And so instead of that, I was forced to kind of go back inside and say, why are you writing? Do you have something meaningful to say? Are you writing because you want to be seen or you want to be famous or, you know, this type of thing, which was partly true. You know, and I think we all go through that, especially in our culture of adoration. You know, we want, and especially now, my God, with social media. Um, but that was not going to make a, a, a readable novel. And so I think that failure really set me back and caused me to kind of rethink and re-examine and say, okay, if you want to be a writer, what do you want? Do you have anything meaningful to say that anybody should bother to read? If you're going to ask people to spend some hours of their life on reading your work, what is it that you want to say? And I really didn't have anything to say. So I started yoga and I got in my body. I was not in my body. I was not embodied. Everything was out there, you know, and through the practice of yoga and meditation and mindfulness too, you know, things happen in your brain, right? You start, you know, these sort of oxytocin things kick in and you become more calm and you become less addicted to the sort of limbic response, the fight or flight, um, the, you know, you get more hooked into the rest and digest response, which is much more self-nurturing as well. So, and then that feeds itself, like that feels good. That starts to feel better than the fight or flight all the time. And as a result of that, these poems came to me and in, within my body, there's a city. And this was the first line of the poem, first poem for downward dog in yoga poems. So I just started writing these poems not because I wanted to publish anything, not because I wanted to be a writer to be famous, just because they were coming out of the practice. Mm -hmm. And that was my first real book, you know, Stonebridge Press of Berkeley published that book. And it was kind of a breakthrough book where, you know, the through the practice of being embodied, of being in my body, of being in my breath, of being present in the present moment, not jumping to ahead and and judging and, and, you know, all of these things, but just being yeah. <laughs> and allowing this creative force to arise. Mm. Um, so that was amazing. And, and then the other thing that you mentioned about worthiness, I think you mentioned about like worthiness. Deserving things. Deserving. Which probably links in somehow. Yeah, Tara Brock, who I've just completed a two-year meditation, mindfulness meditation, uh, teacher training program with she and Jack Cornfield. She talks about this thing called the trance of unworthiness, which is something that we all have. We all have this feeling somewhere inside of us of being unworthy, unworthy of love, unworthy of being loved, unworthy of goodness, you know, and it's a trance. And, and part of awakening is waking up to the fact that this is a trance, that our true nature is loving. And like you said, unlimited. And, you know, that love also can be directed towards ourselves. But part of awakening is waking up to the fact that we're in a trance. And part of that trance is the sense of being unworthy somehow. Yeah, I just love that. So, and uh, deserving, unworthy, whatever word you might want to call it. I think it's something that women especially, um, you know, it's a journey that we have to becoming whole, to waking up from that sense of somehow being not enough or not good enough or or to this or to that or you know whatever yeah whatever things that we <laughs> limit ourselves yeah. and i think meditation and yoga and all that just allow me to just shut all that off and you know remember I'm, there's something bigger there's something larger than than 
the small self, you know, for all of us. Mm. And I think those experiences I had earlier as a child kind of gave me glimpses into that. When I talked about the oneness, you know, hearing Maya Angelou's voice, you know, there were these glimpses into that potential for oneness and for peace and for, you know, reaching beyond this struggle, reaching beyond these individual egos and these individual people trying to be somebody, you know, and just to recognize that we're all part of this giant big <laughs> flow or this energy and how do we want to, um, what energy do we want to generate to put back into that force field, you know? And that maybe sound a little cosmic, but. No, in, in terms of systems coaching, we call that the emotional field. And what do we mm -hmm. do into the emotional field between two people? And sometimes I choose, for example, I could do this right now and bring it down and choose to make it a little bit more serious, or I could choose to bring it up and make it a bit more <laughs> like that. But also what you're talking about is just the way you are, the way, the what you what you bring. There's so much amazing stuff in here. I was interviewing a woman who's an eco-feminist who lives on a farm up in Portland yesterday. And um, she was talking about how she has radical hope. So mm. even though, you know, she's 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 got she's very much on the eco side of things and uh, we were talking something and it just reminded me of what you said there. It's like just to remember. She says, although everything's going to shit in many different ways, I have radical hope and I have to have radical hope. And that was really useful to me because, you know, um, I can be quite nihilistic in some ways. And I, I like that about myself because from there comes great comedy. <laughs> but exactly. it's great. You know, it's it's a nice counter to my other super optimistic side. Um, yeah. Super kind of like, uh, what can I say? Um, I'm just very positive like I'm generally quite happy apart from when I'm depressed so um but that's a different story that's not sad right um so yeah. um I'm not miserable so that radical hope thing really helped me there and this is helping me to put like to weave the the story together and then there's three things here that you mentioned that I just love it's like the trance of unworthiness um and the rest and digest piece as well so it, it's uh, um, and the culture of adoration. I was making some kind of connection between these things here, like thinking, like, what is what is that trance? Um, and the rest and digest piece, I think, is really important to this because you get back into your body and you understand that part. So important, um, yeah. And then the culture of adoration as well. I don't know. It's it, it's all it, 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 obviously it's all connected somehow. Um, one yeah. of the things that, that um, Tara mentions too is when something happens to us, let's say we have an experience that's difficult or traumatic or something, um, you know, we might call that like in Buddhist terms, the first cut, you know, it's painful. But then what we do is we make a second cut and that second cut is self-judgment, blame, um, you know, and we add on to it. And the second cut is actually more damaging than the first cut. The first cut can, can be healed and worked with, but the second cut is sort of a pattern or a cycle or a trigger that we don't even know that we do. And so it, when we catch ourselves in the self-blame, rather than being compassionate, okay, this happens to me, what is needed? You know, how can I uh, nurture myself to this experience that happened rather than the blame, the shame, the, um, you know, whatever we add on to it. So I think that's how it ties in 
insofar as that we actually have the ability, you know, Viktor Frankl, um, he said, right, between stimulus and response, there's a gap. And in that gap, there's a choice. And in the choice, there's freedom. So when something happens to us, before we respond, if we, if we pause, you know, we call it the sacred pause. If we pause, if we take a break, that's when we can get out of that cycle and not go for the second cut. And we can choose, how do I want to respond to this in a loving way, in a kind way, you know, that's not going to add more pain, right? So, and I think the culture of adoration is, again, kind of, all of us outside of ourselves being wanting to be seen and wanting to be looked at and wanting to be perfect and wanting to you know have flawless this and that and you know it's impossible yeah and this constant searching for perfection and you know it's just not possible so we're, that's a lot of suffering right there you know as a culture as a society as a world now so if we can understand impermanence things are not going to last including our youth our beauty our you know what well, it'll be different okay, you. <laughs> it'll, be different. it'll be different kind of beauty yeah rather than getting fillers and botox and you know it'll get i mean that's fine too if you want to do that but it'll be a different kind of beauty that's yeah. a natural way of evolving into who you are becoming and that's beautiful too so but this culture of adoration really sets us up for failure gorgeous yeah amazing and that I think that's what I was going to say in the trance of unworthiness is it feels like we get you talked about the limbic response there I feel like we get trapped in the fight flight freeze but in human evolution that's supposed to be like 10% of the time exactly and, and that sacred pause is not for that if you see a tiger coming towards you there's no sacred fucking pause that's right. <laughs> that's fright fight or freeze right or fawn now now we also have the kind of like fawn where we go into the 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 people pleasing because yeah. we're triggered and then we get into that kind of thing as well so <clears throat> which i i recently learned from an embodiment coach whose name is tada hoizumi so um i um so but going back to that point yeah um we're hardwired for that. But in the past, when we were cavemen or cave people, those dangers would pass. The yes. tiger would come, you'd either get it eaten or you'd eat it. Yes. And then it would be over. But now we have this low level, low grade, constant stress. And yes. so we're constantly in the fight flight response, you know? Amazing. And that's why people get burnt out. That's why they get, um, you know, things happen to our bodies. Uh, that's why we're not healthy. So, um, because we're in this constant state of adrenaline. Amazing. And that's, so that's why one thing I, I really embraced and, and shared in my time in Japan, which I'm so proud of myself, is restorative yoga, which puts people in supportive positions, right? To kick in that rest and digest, to allow the nervous system to calm down so people can regenerate. And, I, and, you know, oh my gosh, Japan and Tokyo, it was so needed. And in the beginning, when I introduced it, people said, oh, this isn't yoga. You're just lying around on pillows. You know, Ashtanga was the big craze. And all those Japanese men, frankly, who said that, you know, 20 years later, they've all been injured from Ashtanga. They've been injured from yoga practices that were not safe. And now they're all teaching and doing restorative yoga, which they gave me so much shit about. <laughs> this isn't real yoga. And, you know. Well, and so my point is, if you're called to do something, you just do it. And if people say no, 
you do it even harder, you know, because there's something there. You, you trust your instinct, you trust yourself. So when I opened my studio, that was, I knew I wanted to do restorative yoga. So I had all these bolsters shipped over because there was nothing in Japan. And that was what I started to do. 20 years later, you know, I trained thousands of people all over Japan and they've gone into their communities to offer this type of yoga. I'm very happy. You know, I feel like that's a legacy that I'm so proud of, you know, talking about uh, legends, legends, right? <laughs> so for me, that legacy is, I think the thing that I'm the most proud of is just having taught that practice to people who went back into their communities who shared it with young and old and inflexible and, you know, anybody can do that type of yoga. Love it. Yeah. I, I'm a big fan of that kind of thing in yin yoga as well. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Um, yes. So it, it's really, I just wanted also to mark for listeners that we also talk about, you called it the first cut and the second cut. And in Gretchen Miura's um, uh, interview, she called it the first arrow and second arrow, which I'm sure you, you oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and we talked about that in the context of grieving death and mm. um, how she dealt with the second arrow after the death of her, her brother. And I actually spoke to one of my clients about this last night as well. And so we were saying, right, we're just gonna burn the second arrow and try and focus on the first arrow. Not, not for something super grievous, cause I can't do that stuff, not super traumatic. It was something very simple. It was something yeah. very simple. Um, because I'm not a therapist, so I don't go deep into the <laughs> trauma things. And the rest and digest, I mean, it's just brilliant, isn't it? Like, yeah, we shouldn't be in that fight, flight, freeze all the time. And I'm sure that I lived it for many years and wasted a lot of time on it, which is fine because it's part of who I am now, but I refuse it now. I just, that's what I always say to myself. I refuse this. I refuse yeah. this. And I look at myself 10 years ago talking about being useful. I look better now. Yeah. I better now. <laughs> yeah, I think with, you know, just becoming comfortable with ourselves, there is a, yeah. a, a natural beauty that emerges from that. Agreed. And a confidence, you know, and. Yeah, I agreed. So tell me more then about, so, so I just want to very quickly, what did you study when you went to university? Um, English literature and Japanese literature. Amazing. Yeah. And so how did you get to, so we've already said you had a, you have this yoga studio that's still in play. In fact, right. some of my friends did a workshop there this week um, called Sun and Moon Yoga. Um, so you've already mentioned that, but I'm interested to know how did you, so you graduated and you've already, you're, you're, you're already writing at this point. How did you get to Japan and what happens next? <laughs> yeah, so again, um, you know, I never had any money because I was a writer and I was very determined to be a writer. Um, and so I, when I went to graduate school at San Francisco State University, which was an amazing program, Stan Rice was there, Anne Rice, his wife who wrote all of the vampire novels, they were there and Michael Rubin was my teacher. Um, and then I graduated and I majored in uh, creative writing as a master's, but I did a, a minor in Japanese literature with a, a, a Japanese woman who was there. Uh, and I graduated from that program and I got a job teaching right away at the program, which was highly unusual and a, a good job. But I had a boyfriend at the time who was very, um, ambitious, very brilliant, and he got a Fulbright scholarship to come to Japan to study uh, medical ethics. So 
I was torn because I thought, oh God, I've got finally got a job. It's a good job. And yet he's got this great opportunity. And I really wanted to go to Japan. And I had $500 to my name. <laughs> so I knew I'd never get there. And so I decided to teach for a semester and then to go with him. So that's what I did. I went with him um, with $500 in my pocket. I applied for lots of English teaching jobs. Um, which I did through, you know, English schools and I went to lots of companies and taught, you know, riding packed trains at six in the morning and um, serendipitously I was at a bookstore and I, I worked for a University of Hawaii's literary magazine Manawa, um, writing book reviews and they were trying to get distribution so I went to Maruzan and I was trying to find out how to get that um, literary magazine distributed there and this man came up to me and said, I, oh, are you a writer? Are you, you want to help? And, and we just started chatting and it turned out he was quite famous um, literary critic and professor at Todai, Tokyo University called Moto Yuki Shibata, wow. translator. And we became friends. And then he sort of offered me a job. He said, hey, you've got a master's. Why don't you come teach at Todai? And I said, oh, I don't think I can do that. And he said, why not? You've got a master's, you know how to write, you know, you know how to speak English, you can. And I said, oh, because it's Todai. And, and he said, yeah, well, I'm inviting you, and I'm the head of the department. So it was just crazy that I just sort of, you know, by coincidence, quote unquote, met this guy at a bookstore. And um, so I ended up teaching English literature, American literature, and like uh, basic grammar at Todai, but it was a joke because a lot of the students, their grammar was far better than mine. <laughs> Um, and my boyfriend at the time, we broke up and he went back to America and I stayed. And I didn't um, really plan on being an expat forever there. And, you know, and then I met Shogo. I met him at a jazz bar. That's your husband. Who's my husband. Yeah. And, and I met him and I thought he was amazing, but I had decided to leave Japan by that point. And I said, listen, yeah. I really like you, but I'm done with Japan. I felt like I it was taught for a few years at Todai. I was writing for the Japan Times regularly. I met Donald Ritchie, who had become a, a mentor to me, and I was editing his journals. I felt like I'd sort of done what I wanted to do in Japan. And Shogo very wisely said, well, listen, if you're not happy here, you're not going to be happy with me. So you should go back to the States. And if you're, you know, we're meant to be together, we will be. I was kind of shocked I'd never had anybody be so yeah. trusting and sort yeah, of it's your life, do what you want, you know? Um, yeah. And so I left and he followed, he came. He packed up his life. He'd never even lived abroad. Um, you know, he'd been to Europe once with his dad when he was 18. Um, and we lived in California for 10 years. And that's when I started the yoga journey. Okay. So I just want to, just for, for any listeners who are outside Japan, Maruzen is a publishing company in Japan, is that right? It's a bookstore. A bookstore. It's a big, huge bookstore, yeah. And okay. also a department store and, yeah. Okay, and Todai is Tokyo University, which is which stands for Tokyo Daigaku, which is like Oxford or Harvard, isn't it? Yeah, it's a yeah. top school and all yeah. the kids want to get in there. And yeah. so to meet somebody like that in a bookstore was just, you know, and then have a job offered to me. And it was a really, it was a, a kind of a really um, pivotal moment for me too, because it was when I came to Japan, it was the first time that I could actually make money as a writer, you know, based on my 
my creative writing degree, my master's, which was worthless in the States, was actually worth something in Japan. And that was very um, empowering for me too, because I had not had much support from my family or parents for being on the path that I was on. Yeah. And for the first time in my life, I had financial independence. So that was huge. Yeah, amazing. But then I left that behind and I, we moved to California and Shogo and I lived there for 10 years and we worked as freelance translator. He worked for Apple and IBM and you know he got some great jobs and we've got a great gig at Lucasfilm at Skywalker Ranch doing um, translation for some Star Wars archives and it was awesome. But then there came a point when once again, America went into war. It was 2003 and America started, uh, well, went into war in Afghanistan. Uh, and Shoko said, you know, I don't like where this is going. I, I think I wanna go back to Japan. And um, it was after 9-11 so 9-11, 2001, right? Yeah. And you couldn't, um, it so my passport had expired, which I hadn't realized. And I couldn't get one right away. So he came to Japan back by himself to visit his dad. And then when he came back to California, he said, I'm, I think I want to move back to Tokyo. And I thought, uh, I didn't really want to, to be honest. I had a nice life in Northern California. We lived in the beach, a town of 100 people, kind of like where you're living. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the thought of moving back to Tokyo just did not appeal to me. But I remembered I had gone on a yoga retreat in Hawaii and I was sitting in meditation and I heard this voice saying, you need to go back to Tokyo and open a yoga studio. And that was exactly my response. I was like, what? Go away, shut up. I don't want to hear this. <laughs> I have no intention of going back to Tokyo nor opening a business there. And so years went by. And then when this happened and he said, are you going to come with me? And I thought, well, you know, he'd been 10 years in America with me. I thought it was only fair for me to go back to Japan with him. So I said, okay, I'll give you 10 years mm -hmm. there. You can sell where that went, right? Yeah. Uh, and um, what am I going to do there? I couldn't go back to, you know, I was smoking and drinking and being a writer. I got the, you know, like uh, the Bloomsbury. I thought I was, you yeah, know, yeah. I didn't like that lifestyle anymore. And I was older and I didn't. I wanted a healthy lifestyle. And then I remembered, oh, wait, I think I'm supposed to open a yoga studio because I got this guidance. And he said, well, I said, do you think I can do that? And he said, well, let's see. And so we sort of Googled and, you know, Google, it just happened then. It was 2003. There was only one or two yoga studios in Tokyo. And he said, you know what? Let's try it. And if you, if you can't do it, you know, we'll, we'll know that then. And so we had flipped a house. We bought an old house that we fixed up and we were able to make some money. And then when we came back to Japan, we used that money to open the yoga studio. And I sent all the props because I love restorative yoga. And the first few months I, I opened the studio and nobody came. And I was like, holy shit, I made a huge mistake. Uh, Nobody, this was a, a way, you know, put all my money in here and nobody came. And then I kind of had this moment where I realized that I hadn't arrived. This is what we were talking about before. Like I was waiting for everyone else to come, but I myself had not arrived in the space. So I pulled out my yoga mat and I just started practicing and I started honoring the space and honoring, you know, my feet on the ground here, everything that's got me to this point. 
you know, I arrived in, the, in my space and I, I honored the space, I blessed the space, you know, but it took me two months to realize because I kept waiting for where are my students, where are my students? And I, you know, and then I went to few, yay few. And <laughs> I stood up and I said, hey, everybody, I'm Lise. I've just opened a yoga studio, please come. And the woman next to me, Catherine, shout out to Catherine, uh, said, oh, I've been waiting for you. Uh, she was a lawyer at the time and now she's a yoga teacher, but she was a lawyer. And she said, I, I'm coming. And she came every day. She was my student for like the next month and nobody else. And then um, the phone rang mm -hmm. and it was um, Okamura Ta Takashi who had a show called 99 Size. He's a famous comedian, the okay. little guy. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said, or his producers or somebody were like, hey, uh, he wants to come to your yoga studio and do yoga with you and, and you'll be on this comedy show. And I had, didn't have a TV and I didn't know who he was. And I said, sure, that sounds like fun. Comedy, yoga, okay, whatever. And uh, Shivani, Sarah Shivani, who you might know. Yeah, I do know her, yeah. Uh, she came along and, and um, she was quite fluent in Japanese. So she was sort of my foil and the two of us just had a blast with him and we laughed and we put him in restorative yoga poses and they had these cue cards for me where I was supposed to say things in Japanese, but the it was written in Romaji, but it was like incorrect. Yeah. And it felt like I was supposed to say kimoji desyo, which means like, oh, it feels good, doesn't it? Yeah. But it would the cards were written incorrectly. And uh, like kimoji daru or so, you know, and I wasn't sure should I say what's on the card? Should, so I just read what's on the card and it was hysterical. And people came up to me afterward and said, we've never seen a yoga teacher like that who could laugh and make fun of themselves. Because in Japan, the yoga teachers were literally on pedestals. Okay. And they were serious. and They were the sensei. And, you know, we just, I, people just start flocking to my studio. People would stop me on the street and say, oh, you're the yoga teacher. I say, oh my gosh, now I can't eat and walk. You know, like I have to be very careful how I am in public. Uh, yeah. But it was, it was uh, just amazing how just arriving in the space, allowed, first of all, recognizing that I was waiting once again externally to be validated and just taking the reins and saying, okay, nobody's coming. Nobody is coming. You are coming to your own life. You open the door to your own life. And that's what I did. And it was like that moment when I was a teenager when I realized nobody is going to make your life for you. You've got to make it yourself. You've got to take those steps. So it was that same, but only you know, 20, 30 years later. And, and then the universe supported that. So it was just amazing. And then that, you know, that the rest is history. The studio is now coming into its 19th year. Even though I'm no longer there, we have so many great teachers. Shout out to M. Bettinger for keeping the place going and Toshiko and my husband Shogo, who, you know, does all of the Toshiko does all the administrative stuff. Chogo does all of the logistical things and the bookkeeping and all that. So it really takes a village. And we, we have so many great teachers. We have so many great students. And the beautiful thing is we've been in business now for almost 20 years. So we've had people who've met at the studio, who've gotten together, who've started their own families, quite a few actually. Yeah. And now we have second you know, generation, Sun and Moon, kids who are yogis so and then I have my own child too who came when I was 44 so that's a whole other conversation wow. 
yeah that's so, I realized you were 44 when you uh when um your son came along yeah yeah and and that was something too like i really wanted to experience in my life i didn't feel like i was missing anything or i didn't feel incomplete in some way but you know what they say like at the end of your life you will look back and regret the things that you didn't do and it was something in my mind like i want to have the experience of being a mother like i think this is something i'm going to regret if i don't try it yeah you know <laughs> you know now in hindsight oh my god what was i thinking but you know um i decided to try to pursue that and see if it would happen and then if it didn't happen knowing that i'd taken it you know as far as i could then i would be okay with that too mm -hmm. but i did feel that there was something that needed to be explored there and then as i wrote about in you know in search of the sun my memoir i kept hearing this voice of a child calling to me like mm -hmm. literally i would hear this voice of a child kind of waiting for me calling to me so then it sort of became a search for him like who is this child where is he and can I find him? Can I sort of cut through time and space and whoever this soul is calling me find this person, you know, and that became this incredible journey. And he found you. How many years ago is that now? Lisa, sorry, uh -huh. I'm going to give your age out now, but who cares? Yeah, no, it's okay. I'm 50 this year, so. Uh, 14. <laughs> yeah. So I'm 58. Yeah, no, I'm happy to be alive. And, and the yeah, other thing. Too. What a privilege. What an honor to be uh, extending our lives out, I feel. <laughs> so cool. anyway but so he's 14 now well um, he's almost 16. he's almost 16 and this was 14 right. years ago that he right. arrived in your life having kind of through the ether been calling to you <laughs> what do you think was the kind of you mentioned the word cosmic earlier so let's just let's jump into that area what do you think was the cosmic reason that he was brought to you well, I think people come in our lives to help us evolve and to help us, you know, kind of manifest our our potential and our gifts and our, you know, what we're put here to do. And sometimes they're difficult people. They're challenging, fierce people, as you mentioned. And, you know, um, sometimes they're more easeful relationships. But I think for whatever, we have things to learn from each other. And I feel like this child <laughs> clearly is a very strong personality and a, an amazing person and very strong personality. So I, I woke up to one morning and I, I was living with him and my husband and my husband's father and all three of them are extremely strong, stubborn Japanese, 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 Japanese men. How am I living in a white foreign woman living with three really stubborn, strong, powerful Japanese men. And and my friend said to me, it's because one of you is equal to three of them. <laughs> you know, like you can handle them. They may not be able to handle you, but you were there because they've got things to learn from you. You've got things to learn from them. And I really do believe that, you know. Um what's the biggest lesson you taught lesson? you? Oh patience i am not a very i was not a very patient person um empathy and compassion i mean one of my my things i love teaching at sun and moon is metta loving kindness meditation and compassion and um this part this child has 
<laughs> pushed me in so many different ways to be more patient and be more compassionate and also to to be strong and to you know set boundaries and stand up for myself and you know continually you know like oh well, i still have to do this yes you do you know it's it's um especially as a teenager mm. so anybody who's ever had a a, a, a you know challenging teenager and I myself was one, so karmically, it's not much of a surprise that I get one, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, and I also think to really appreciate my mother. So shout out to my mom, Donna Mendelssohn, you know, to appreciate my mother and what she struggled with and how she always insisted that we get an education. And, you know, that was the most important thing to her, that we, the three of us girls, that we be educated and that we be independent and, you know, one of my sisters is an amazing artist, the other is a doctor, you know, that we each kind of found our path and, and believed in that. And, you know, um, yeah. So I feel like I had things still to learn about maybe appreciating my own mother, uh, appreciating um, all mothers. You know, we all are mothers, whether you have a biological child or not, whether your child is biological or not. You know, we all, women and, and men too, I think, have the capacity to have that nurturing um, energy and that it's something the world really, really needs right now. So he was my kind of, you know, baptism by fire in that. Like, okay, you want to be a mother? <laughs> yeah, be careful what you wish for, really. Like, it's not so yeah. easy. It's not an easy job. And I have so much respect for mothers now. Yeah, you know? sure. Yeah, I love that. We're all mothers. I mean, I emphatically chose not to have children. Like, that's not something that I ever, that's not going to be one of my deathbed regrets. <laughs> I can, if I transport myself into the future and use my imagination. However, when I was um, doing my systems coaching training, we had to find a positive secret self that lives inside of us. And mine was mother, actually. And following that, I brought that much more to the table. And um and I'm very glad that I was able to discover, like, and bring more of that part of myself to the table. It's really, really uh, I interesting. Totally so, yeah. And I think you mother a lot of people through your coaching and through even this work that we're, you're doing right now. I mean, they're different. There's so many different ways to be a mother. 100%. You know? Absolutely. There's no, no shame there. And yeah, I love it. And um, I'm everybody's favorite auntie. So this is, this is, <laughs> and I'm going to be doing that today as well. <laughs> yeah. Auntie too. I had an amazing aunt who was so instrumental in my life as well and you know aunties are mothers you know yeah. Oh, yeah absolutely there's just so many different ways to to do that so many different ways to lead a life isn't there and like everybody needs that eccentric auntie who's like yeah go for your life with all the uh, sugary drinks in the free bar and then later <laughs> they're like uh, auntie sarah i don't think I sh you should have let me have all the sugary drinks i feel really sick okay on you go <laughs> Oh, Mine was the, uh, the marijuana in the shoebox. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a joint. That mine was that end. You know? <laughs> that might have been who I was thirty years ago, but not now. <laughs> Definitely well, not. You have the sugary drink, so. Well, oh no! I mean, I would, I would actually not do that anymore. But like, you know, I was, I was always like, say, ten years ago, be that like, go on, on you go, you choose, you decide. <laughs> Yay, they're like just amazing and then they learn very quickly. That was not a good idea. <laughs> um, cool. There was something, there was just a really small thing that I'd love people to, that I just want to pick up on here, which is about, because we haven't really 
kind of talked about the cross-cultural stuff and I don't want to go there but this is something I want to flag for listeners you said and then I couldn't eat and walk and I think one thing that I'm noting <laughs> now about living in a different culture in a different country is to be really mindful about the rules and regulations of that place so that you can play within them so I think you and I are both kind of rebels within this but that's just a really simple thing is like um it's really taboo it's really against etiquette to eat and walk in of course we all do it like so to walk along and eat um but and I can remember the very first job I got here I was told never eat and walk because you don't know if any of the when I first got here I was a kindergarten teacher you don't know if any of the parents can see you in any of the places you are and if they see you doing that it just sends out really bad signals and you know I'm a rebellious northern England woman who doesn't like authority so I might be like that's ridiculous why would I do that onigiri are meant to be you know um, rice balls are meant to be eaten you know but actually as the, the, the more I'm more relaxed and enjoy myself more when I follow the, the, the rules and regulations in Japan because then I know how to color outside of them as well. And you can, and there's an awful lot of freedom within them. And I just, and that I think is just also kind of slightly decolonizing my mind as well. To be yeah, open, I think that's not really just kind of bulldozing point. my way in and trying to change everything, but actually going, okay, now I'm here, this is where I live, I'm going to, to look after it. so that was something that really really resonated with me when you said that it's so tiny and people may not even have picked up on it but it just shows that respect and I think we'd be incredibly successful within that is there anything to add to that yeah I think it's really good word respect I think being respectful of the culture of the way of life of the mindset um and kind of abiding by things that are important just to signify that you do respect the culture you know and then there are other ways to rebel so i had this i have this yoga studio where i could do lisa and i could people could you could do sarah and people could do themselves so i created a kind of a bubble a we co-created i feel the community co-created this bubble where people could be themselves which was why it was so successful you know the people could come in and the minute you walk in, you knew you could be yourself there. You would be accepted for you all. You didn't have to be anybody different. Um, but I feel like Japan, one of the things that it did teach me was discipline and was respect and you know, kind of to get over myself that I, yeah, I was yes. never gonna change Japanese society, but right. I could change myself and how I responded to it in subtle ways um, yeah. and create a space where people could be authentic within you know, find what worked for them in the society and what didn't work for them, <clears throat> dispense with that. So I feel like that was a, a big learning process for me, having a, a partner who was so amazing and supportive of me and, and you know, didn't expect me to be different um, and didn't want me to change was really freeing as well. And not having to change myself and not, <clears throat> you know, wanting him to change either. So I th I'm really grateful to Japan for helping me to become this person as well. And then ironically, out of all that, I became a writer. You know, I was able to publish books. I, you know, I published, we had this big uh, tsunami and earthquake in 2011. And I went up to volunteer in the Tohoku and I met a young boy who reminded me of my son. And he said, which means don't forget about us. 
Oh God, yeah. And I thought, oh, how, what can I do? And my friend said, well, you're a writer. Why don't you write about it? That's a great way to keep a light shining on that area. And so I eventually ended up doing that. And that book was published by Random House. So that was to me kind of a pinnacle, the biggest publisher in the world, having that book published by them and then being able to, I donated the money, Carolyn Pover, who I'm sure you know, um, started all of these volunteer projects up in Tohoku and has written a book about it now. And um, one of the projects was a library. So it was just so wonderful going back to the idea of Seva, you know, to, to have written this book and then to be able to use the profits from that to bring it back to the community to build a library so kids could read and have a safe place you know so it was kind of by letting go of the dream to be a writer for the wrong reasons perhaps and then you know doing the yoga getting embodied being in a community giving to the community having that and then when this disaster happened to kind of naturally feel called well what can i do and this kid to say to me i always get really emotional you know, oh, me too. I'm just thinking about it now. Yeah. You know, and to be able to use my writing in that way to be of service was was really, really fulfilling. So I feel like, you know, you really have to let go of your agenda sometimes and just let the universe use you in in ways that are meaningful and just trust, you know. That's a radical, that's a radical hope. Radical trust. <laughs> and radical um, love, really. I mean, I yeah. think everything I did in Japan was from love. Like I wanted to give back to these people that had helped me so much and had given me so much, so. Agreed, and as we're coming up to the 10 year anniversary of that, I can feel my heart starting to twitch already. Like I was just thinking about it then, like it's coming up for 10 years uh, in two weeks time since that and I can already start feel talking about being embodied I can feel my body starting to wake up to that whole thing and I don't know what's going to happen but what I do want to ask on a very practical front Lisa is what's your book's name about that so that is a young adult novel it's all written in verse it's one long poem and it's called up from the sea up from the sea oh oh no and I've been <laughs> And I've also been really honored to, you know, go have done dozens of school visits all over the world to talk about this book and the events and how people came together. The book is really about how people came together from all over the world to help these communities. So even though it was a, it was a horrible tragedy and 15,000 people plus <clears throat> away, people came together and they helped people, they helped strangers and these incredible acts of kindness. So that's really what the book celebrates. It's, it's based on true stories of yeah. um, people, you know, woman finding a soccer ball in Alaska and returning it to a kid who had lost it in um, Mikuzen Takata up on the coast. And, you know, just small things like that. She could have just kept on walking, but she found it in Alaska, a Japanese woman. What's a Japanese woman doing in on this remote, stretch of beach in Alaska. And she found the soccer ball with names written on it. And she realized this must be from Name Tsunami. It must be important. And rather than just walking on by, she and her husband went to the trouble of tracking down this child and returning the ball. I mean, so stories like that I wove into the novel about, it's about a, a boy who lost his mother. And he's based on the boy that I met when I was there. So um, life yeah, is mysterious. 
and a lot of yeah. um, embodied stuff that's I'm um, seeing kind of coming up to the surface in those people like you and I and the whole of Japan who had that shared experience as well. Um, but that's that's a whole whole other that's a whole other conversation I think I don't want to start that right now because we need to start to land this but um yeah that was a, <laughs> an event and just sending massive love up to all the people up there who are still uh suffering so badly yeah um, so, and, and you know yeah. you know one person can make a difference you know like yeah. you you can do something to make a difference you can go up and volunteer you can write a book you can talk about it you can you know we went up to there to volunteer we gave massage and as a foreign woman um the only western westerner up there I, I wondered these people have been through this horrible experience are they going to be open to to somebody like me touching them or offering and yeah. and they were just so uh, happy that people cared you know that was the bottom line they were happy that the world cared you know because they felt that they had been not cared for um so that was such a moving experience for me as well and to see some friends of mine in tokyo that come together and 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 m back to m betcher you know we had big drives at the at the yoga studio that she and her husband phil um arranged and people donated massive amounts of stuff so we were the largest non-corporate donor of supplies up to tohoku for the for that year because of really of M and her husband Phil and all of the people who you know donated supplies and money and you know through this yoga studio so it was really nice to be able to do just a small thing like that but you know it makes a difference that's a, a lovely lovely thing um what a legacy as well so I think it's time for us to land this conversation now Lisa so what's so currently you're based in California is that right I'm actually not in California, I'm in New Mexico. In New Mexico, and you're there for your son's education, is that right? Yeah. Is, is, is he a big sportsman? Is he a big sportsman? He is a big soccer player. Okay, so that's why you're over there, is it? Yeah, and to give him the opportunity to experience my culture, my language, yeah. you know, he's been in Japan his whole life. He wanted yeah. to learn English, you know, just to have that balance. Yeah, so to get in, in touch with the American side of the family, and so what? What's next for you then? What? What's? What? What are you doing? I mean, obviously you're devote. That one of my favorite words is devotion. So you're devoted to your son, and you're devoted to that family, and you know, and your husband's still in Japan, right? So for anybody who who lives outside of Japan, this may seem radical, but actually, if you live in Japan, then there's lots of different ways that people do their um, their their nuclear family. People are often in different places and stuff like that. It's not. It's just. It, it's just not based on the Western model. <laughs> I know a lot of people are so shocked. But what's happened to your marriage? And did I say that we're fine? You know, we're fine. Yeah. yeah. But I think. I mean, I still have several books I'm working on. Um, I still teach yoga and mindfulness. Um, I still have the yoga studio. I still do teacher trainings, but my, my main focus right now is, is supporting my son through high yeah. school here. And, mm -hmm. um, but I have a, such a strong love and connection for Japan that I, I will be back. Um, yeah. And I have my, my son and moon is still open and I'm still teaching there online now. And also I will go back, you know, as these COVID restrictions lift, I'll be able to go back more and offer more teacher trainings and workshops and 
and be more uh, close to the people I love there. So I miss Japan. I really do miss it. I'm very happy to be here right now for him and for myself as well. I needed a bit of a break. I think it's good to shake yourself up. Yeah. Um, so um, more writing, more yoga, more mindfulness, and, and we'll see. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I, you know, part of my heart is in Japan and, and I've invested a lot of time and energy and learning the language and, and I have so many deep relationships there um, that will always be a part of me as well, so. Yeah, yeah, lovely. So what, um, what books, what, what, if you were to recommend three of your books, so I'm gonna recommend Up From The Sea. What was the other one you mentioned? Your memoir is called? In Search, In Search Of The Sun. In Search Of The Sun. Yeah. If there was another so one from your canon, what would you choose? Yeah. I think um, I was looking on my shelf to see if I have a copy up here. I think um, probably yoga poems. Yoga poems. Okay, so here's one. It's called Yoga Heart. Yeah. Oh, it's in there, which is about the six perfections of Buddhism. Like you mentioned, kindness and generosity and patience and um, joyful effort and stillness yeah so um can i read a poem i'm just gonna oh, open to a page. oh my god i'm glad i've got a tissue is there any parting words um is there any parting words and and so this is just perfect please do okay <sighs> so we're gonna have like <laughs> Poem now read by Lisa from her book. Which book is this one? Yoga Heart or Yoga Poems? So this is called Yoga Heart. Yeah. And it's uh, based on the six perfections of Buddhism. Who did that shoulder? Uh, the, the, on the front. Oh, that, thank the you. Yoga? This is Akiko Tanimoto, who was one of my students, who did this beautiful art throughout the book. Yeah. Look at this, this is yoga. And she was oh. one of my students. And I put out a call, I think, on Facebook saying, hey, I need a calligrapher to do uh, the art for my book. And she said, oh, well, my teacher is this master. And I said, how about you? Forget about your teacher. How about you? And she sent these beautiful drawings of, you know, very Japanese fireflies and teapots and dragonflies and things like that. And the publisher said, why don't you take this Tsuboku, this Japanese, you know, brushwork and do yoga figures. And it was radical. Look at this. It's a, a lunge. Oh, oh, it's so amazing. And so I she created it. this new form, you know, out of her yoga practice, out of being in the studio. And this is another thing. This is child's pose. Look at that. Oh my God, that's so beautiful. But Lisa, again, it's that sense of she's like, oh, I have a teacher. And you're like, no, no, you you get to be the master now. So you get to elevate her in the same way that your mentor elevated you. Beautiful. Unbelievable. Absolutely. And that, you know, has been such a great joy for me. And, and, and the thing I love probably even more than teaching yoga is helping people to, you know, manifest their potential. And yeah. so this poem is called Grace. Grace. Perhaps a feeling of relief washes over you the way you unexpectedly see the face of someone you love in a crowd. Maybe a prayer fills your heart 
as you sit in the midst of your crowded life, welcoming the empty space. This is your daily work. To, to live this life as if she's there, just over your shoulder, an angel, weightless in her wings, breaking open the sky at your back. Oh, gorgeous. <laughs> That's Grace. That's gorgeous. Thank you so much. And it's good to know I've got access to Grace just over my shoulder. <laughs> So with great grace, I honor you today. And thank you so much, Lisa, for uh, joining us today and sharing your one of the many, many ways to lead lives and also the, the stories of the other people in your life. It's just, I really, really do uh, more and more believe that these conversations, these legends, because that's what a legend is. It's actually a story that may or not be true, may or may not be true, told by somebody <laughs> who's a great you know, in the retelling, if we did this again, different stories would come out and they'd come out in different ways. So that's yeah. why I call it the Legends series, uh, which is terribly bold, isn't it? But this is just about those kind of myths and legends that, that, that are born out of people leading their lives in so many different and interesting and unique ways, which is every single life, every single life. Um, and so I just kind of pluck out the ones that I, that again that little voice that goes now's the time to contact Lisa or oh I want to she looks interesting and contacting people and just <laughs> or he looks interesting and just contacting people and seeing if they're willing to have these conversations recorded because you know we have a lot of the written word there's a lot of you know how-to podcasts out there um and I kind of want to give the texture and the the, the richness to my coaching through these stories rather than teaching coaching through a podcast and um, I'm so grateful to you for having come here today and let us share your story Lisa thank you so much well I'm really grateful to you this is brilliant and I just am in awe of what you do and how you do it and please keep doing what you're doing it's just such a service so thank you Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate you. And thank you, everybody, for listening or watching. Where can we find you, Lisa? Is it lisalowitz.com or where, where would you like to find you? L-E-Z-A-L-O-W-I-T-Z.com or sunandmoon.jp if you want yoga, meditation, mindfulness. Yeah. Or just we'll drop that into the comments. Thank you so much and see you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this latest legend on the Sarah Furuya Legends podcast. Hop over to sarahfuruya.com where you can find the full complement of uh, Legends interviews and conversations. Also, you can like and subscribe over on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. I absolutely love these interviews and these conversations I have with these people. I don't care about subscribers, if I'm absolutely honest. It just helps to get more people over to listen to these fantastic people. I cannot wait for my next interview. I really hope you can get stuck in and find some juice and some delightful little nugget of knowledge or encouragement from these that will help you to create your story and to take your story forward and to weave and dream up and high dream your own story. Buoyed up by the stories of these people, I would call them ordinary, they're not. But these people, these beautiful legends who I've selected, 
to help you on your way and to help me on my way. So please enjoy, share, subscribe. My Facebook page is Sarah Faruya Coaching. My Instagram page is at Sarah Faruya Coaching too. So get into it. Thanks. Bye.